I didn't think that I could be a scientist, uh, as crazy as that might sound in this, like today, but I, neither of my parents were scientists. I didn't have, like I said, any female role models really whatsoever growing up. Um, and an eighth grade science teacher who was a woman, that was it. <laughs> so my thought was that I would either teach science and at the middle school or high school level or perhaps go into an environmental conservation nonprofit and be engaged with protecting nature in that way. And it wasn't until I was really out of college that I thought to myself, I need to give this a try. This is this is really what I'm passionate about. And so let's let's give it a try. This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today's guest is Dr. Liz Alter, professor of biology at the City University of New York. Congratulations, Liz. You are killing it. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to share with our listeners an important fact, which is that you have named a fish. <laughs> yes. could, you, could you tell us the story of how you discovered this new type of fish? Sure. So one of the projects that I work on, I'm a, I'm a fish biologist and an evolutionary geneticist. One of the projects that I work on is looking at fish diversity in the Congo River in Africa. And I have close colleagues that I work with at the American Museum of Natural History to do that. So um, we found some specimens in the summer of 2011 that uh, didn't really match previously known specimens of, of this kind of fish. And so we suspected that it was probably something new, but we took it back to the lab and did some workup on it um, over the course of a year or so, looking at the, the bodies of the fishes, the genetics, what they were eating by identifying their stomach contents. So sure enough, um, it turned out to be something brand new, brand new species. And at that point, uh, we were able to name it, which was very exciting for me because it's the first time I've ever been able to name a species. And so we decided to name it after uh, President Obama and Michelle Obama, First Lady Obama, um, in honor of their contributions towards uh, encouraging science and the development of science in Africa. And also because the Obamas are very, very popular in the Congo. So if you go into any home, you'll see pictures of Nelson Mandela, and you may see pictures of Obama right next to him. <laughs> really? Amazing. Yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of um, pride um, in, in uh, Obama's presidency in, in the Congo, and apparently in other African countries as well. So, wow, yeah. that is fascinating. Yeah, so we named the fish Teleogramma Obama Orum, <laughs> is the full the full Latin name uh, named after the Yeah, that is so cool. I I do have a request though, Liz. Mm -hmm. Okay, the next time you discover a species, <laughs> I'm I'm making a request to you that you name it after yourself. Afterwards, <laughs> well, it's funny you should say that. That is, uh, yeah, that's 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 not really um, de rigueur. <laughs> you can't. You're, you're, that's that's that would that would be um, pretty pretty bold and and uh, impolitic in the world of naming species. But um, really, yeah, you're not really supposed to name things after. 
after yourself. You can name them after your mentor. You can even name them after your spouse or your kids, but not after yourself. You have to wait for somebody to name a species after you. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. I've kind of been obsessed with this issue lately because there's a, a new book that came out and the author is uh, Rebecca Solnit. And mm. one thing, it's a it's like an atlas. It's called Nonstop Metropolis, a New York City atlas. Mm-hmm. But in it, she included a new map of New York's, the New York City subway system, oh, cool. uh-huh. in which she renamed every stop after a woman. I saw that. I saw that making the rounds. That's very cool. <laughs> and well, I was like, there's really not enough stuff named after women. Yes, absolutely. So I was hoping we could get a Liz Alter fish yes, out there. Maybe a Hillary Clintonensis or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> I really like, you know, I guess I didn't know about the, in the biology world. In other worlds, it seems like when men discover things, they name it after themselves. Oh, yeah. so. <laughs> <laughs> true enough, true enough. So let, let's, let's talk about your career path. I mean, how did you end up um, in the, in, I mean, I'm sure it's probably a long story, but how did you end up in the Congo studying fish? Yeah, it is a long story. It is a long story. <laughs> I'll try to compress it. Um, so I finished my PhD in 2008, which is the same year that my oldest um, son was born. And um, at that time, I was I was not totally sold on the idea of an academic career. So, the, you know, a career in which I would be a professor working at a university doing research and teaching and all the rest of it. I had seen my advisor and his sort of struggle to balance his life at Stanford, where I did my PhD, and um, thought it didn't it didn't look like a, a path that I necessarily wanted to follow. So um, when I finished, I instead of going sort of the traditional route of doing an academic postdoc, I started working at an environmental nonprofit and acted as, as a science advisor for them for a while. Uh, and that was really great. It gave me a little bit of a break while I was struggling with the, you know, with trying to be a parent for the first time. Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't feel um, that acute pressure that um, exists in a lot of workplaces, including academia. Um, non- the nonprofit I was at was very family friendly and uh, it was a wonderful place to be while, you know, in the first two years of, of my son's life. And then um, after those first two years were over, I started to feel like, okay, this is, um, you know, this is something I enjoy, but I'm really missing some aspects of what I. Um, what I did as a PhD student, I missed the research and I miss interacting with students. And uh, so I started applying for um, faculty jobs and I got one at City University of New York. Um, we were at that point, my husband and I had been living in New York and um, we're, we're mainly here on the East Coast for his job. Um, we moved from California for his job. Um, so I was constrained in that way to applying for faculty jobs on the East Coast, but was happy to to get one. But that coincided my my first year as a as a professor coincide, coincided with the birth of my second son. <laughs> <laughs> so I was sort of back in the situation that I was trying to avoid in the first place. Um, but at least at that point, I had some idea of what was coming with a new baby and was able to to navigate that. And as it turned out, my department is also very family friendly. There, There's a lot of um, younger faculty with kids. And my uh, the chair of our department is a woman who has kids herself and um, has just been fantastic um, about, you know, understanding that need for 
work-life balance, um, <laughs> if we can use that word. Um, it makes such a difference, yeah. right? If the people that you work for and with have that mindset Absolutely. about the importance of family, it makes such a difference. Yeah, it really does. Uh, and then along the way, so as I was starting to develop my lab and, and my research program, I developed close ties with an ichthyologist at the Museum of Natural History here in New York um, named Melanie Stiasny, who's just fantastic. Um, she's just been an incredible role model. Um, and I realized in, when I started working with her that I had never really had a woman role model um, as a scientist before. Um, so she's an incredible scientist, an incredible person. Quick question, guys. Have you joined my email community? I share all kinds of tips from the amazing women that I interview on how to kill it in your career. My emails are all about us working together to maximize our career results and our happiness. So we're filling the mentoring gap for women and we are lifting each other up. When you sign up today, I'll send you some awesome emails, including my seven step action plan to killing it. To sign up, just text all one word, killing it to 38470. That's three, eight, four, seven, zero. And the word to text with no spaces is killing it. Now back to the show. So at that point in your career, had you had male role models previously? Yeah, so um, my PhD advisor, my advisor for my master's, uh, my undergraduate advisor, pretty much all along the way, all of my role models in science were men. Um, and they were wonderful. They were really great. Um, but I, again, I, I realized when I got to the museum that I had never actually had a, a female role model in science. And um, we've been collaborating and working closely together ever since. And it's just been, it's been a really wonderful um, experience. We've talked a lot on this podcast about people's role models. And, and it's, I've heard a lot of women say they, they didn't have female role models. Mm -hmm. And often the reason is there weren't actually women available right? Right, right. <laughs> in those senior positions at that time in their career. Yeah. Um, what difference did it make to you having the female role model as opposed to the male role model? Yeah, I, it's interesting. I've been trying to sort of put my finger on it. Um, I think, you know, because uh, my, my role model now, um, she, it, it's not so much about family demands. Um, she doesn't have children herself, but she deeply understands um, she's gay and is married um, and deeply understands the sort of the implicit biases and prejudices that we face in the sciences. She's very aware of it and has fought against it her whole career. And she is now a senior scientist who's in a position to be able to help younger women and has really made it a point to do that, which is really inspiring. Um, so it's something that I look forward to being able to try to do as I sort of move, move up the ladder myself to be able to, to inspire young women to go into the sciences. I noticed on your website for the Alter Lab that mm -hmm. you have a lot of young women and, and your team. Yes, yes. Yeah, and we have, I mean, we have a, a, a good gender balance, um, but, we, but, but for sure I've had um, some fantastic young women that have, that have worked with our lab. And uh, one of them, who I'm particularly proud of, just started a PhD program at Brown University. So she's, um, you know, her family immigrated to this country and um, she wasn't sure if she wanted to go into 
scientific research, but um, we worked together and she she um, developed a real love for it and she's been incredibly successful. So that's been it's been fantastic to watch her flourish and to challenge herself to take on these bigger and bigger goals. That's very inspiring. And I want to get back to the story of how you ended up in Africa mm. looking, finding, discovering a fish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so you were saying you met your, you met your mentor at the Natural History Museum. Yeah. And so her, her research area is African fishes. So she's, she's British. She's been working in Africa for uh, 40 years. <laughs> um, she's one of the world's leading experts on African freshwater fishes. My expertise coming in was on fish genetics. And she, she's not a geneticist. Uh, she does um, taxonomy and systematics uh, using morphology, using the way the fish look, essentially, um, measuring their bodies and scale counts and things like that. And so um, I was able to bring sort of a new skill to that project. And that's, the, that's been sort of the essence of our collaboration. And um, a fun piece of it is is traveling to Africa and actually seeing fish in their natural habitat and collecting them um, and meeting with our in-country collaborators. Um, and, and that's another place where we're really focused on trying to engage, I mean, more Congolese period in science and particularly environmental science um, and ecology, but in particular young women. There are very, 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 very few women ecologists in in the Congo, as you can imagine. And so we've uh, started to try to, through our collaborators, you know, encourage and support, financially support those women where we can um, to pursue higher education in ecology. That's really amazing. I actually have sponsored some women in the Congo through really? an organization called, yeah, there's a wonderful organization called Women for Women International. Oh, cool. And you oh, can sponsor women around the world to go through training programs to um, learn to be, to get skills, to be able to be, um, you know, more self-sufficient and um, have have marketable skills. Oh, fantastic. So, uh, but a couple of them have been in the Congo. Like every nine months, I get a new one. Nice. Um, <laughs> That's amazing. I'm definitely going to look that up. That sounds incredible. It's an amazing organization. Excuse my ignorance. Are you in like the DRC or a different part of the both, Congo? Yeah. So we work in both DRC and Republic of Congo. So okay. there are, you know, the, the, we're, we're in the, we're working in the river um, or on the river banks more accurately. Um, and so um, for a lot of the, that, that stretch of the lower Congo, um, the two countries are on opposite banks. Um, so that makes the logistics a little challenging sometimes because, you know, you can see across to the other the other side, but if you want to get there, it involves you know a lot of red tape and a, uh, a lot of visas and things like that. So, yeah, and then and just in general, I mean, those are difficult parts of the world. I mean, I actually years ago represented a woman who was getting political asylum from mm -hmm, the DRC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it is. It, it's very tricky. I you know. We communicate with our collaborators who are in Kinshasa and Brazzaville regularly, and um, it's especially when there's flare-ups. Like right now, there's protests that are that have been going on for a couple months and don't seem to be dying away. So it's yeah, it, it, it it's not always possible to to go in the field when we need to, and that's that can be that can be an issue for sure. But I mean, in general, we're working in the western part of the country, which is a more politically stable and and not not quite as it's not the sort of the epicenter of of the problems that that you read about. Yeah, because yeah, the idea of thinking about women being ecologists 
seems, you know, I mean, I, I, I hear about women, you know, being victims of rape as a war yeah. crime. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, women ecologist seems like a really big leap from that. Right, right. And, and I mean, the tragic <laughs> thing is that, um, yeah, certainly, you know, being a, being a woman in a, in a place that's ravaged by war has, has its risks. Also being um, an ecologist period in some of these places carries a big risk because, um, if there's poaching going on, if there's illegal logging going on, you know, then those groups don't want um, field ecologists anywhere near there. So there have been some tragic incidences of ecologists um, or environmental scientists getting killed just for sort of being in the wrong place at the wrong time or, or documenting certain things that are going on. Yeah, so so it's, it's not, um, well, it's not a place I would take my kids on vacation, <laughs> put it that way. <laughs> Yeah. And and then also when you're looking at the, at the species you're also looking at the effect of climate change on on the species is that right? We so we're interested broadly in human impacts on biodiversity in these rivers um in the Congo and then closer to home I'm also doing some studies on um the Bronx River and on Jamaica Bay here in New York um looking at the effects of climate change of pollution of of uh dams in the river on um, on what can live there. So so yeah, that's a, sort of a bigger goal of all these projects is to understand how biodiversity in these systems is shaped by the decisions that we're making as humans. Apart from uh, discovering a new species of fish, which is pretty awesome, do you have any other career highlights or, or things that make you particularly proud about your career? Well, yes. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about that after you sent the question, um, what career highlights? I mean, so sort of a broad highlight for me has been building my lab um, because when I started out as a professor, it was just me. <laughs> um, and then over time, it becomes um, sort of like a cross between a mini business and a and a second family, you know. You add students, graduate students, lab technicians, and then all of a sudden, before you know it, you have this group of people who are all depending on you and who are looking to you for leadership. It's really the first time in my life that I've, you know, thought of myself in that sort of leadership role. And it's occurred to me that, okay, now I'm the mentor. So now I'm I'm the person who, through my actions and my words, whether I realize it or not, I'm impacting how these young people are seeing seeing science, seeing their career. I think we're probably at similar stages in our career. At least we've had kids. My first kid was born in 2007. So <laughs> at least we mm -hmm, had kids mm -hmm. at the same time. And I feel like right, yeah. I'm at that part of my career as well. It's like you have the time when you have the little children and you're kind of trying to keep your career going. But then at this age, I'm 40. At this age, it's like you just want to kind of, this is the time of, right, of leadership, of taking it to the next level. And that is pretty a pretty rewarding feeling, right? Absolutely, yeah. And it's nice to be able to ramp back up, I guess. Um, you know, I, there were there there definitely were a few years in there after my kids were born where I was, uh, you know, I was so consumed with being a mom and 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 the academic. My job was really taking taking a back seat, and then there were points at which I despaired that I'd ever be able to really ramp up again. And there were times when I wondered if I was doing the right thing by splitting my attention. You know, I, I did have a a woman professor tell me at some point along the way and really it really stuck with me that, you know, you can be a you can be a professor and a mom, but you're not gonna be 
as good at either one as if you just did one or the other. <laughs> and at the time, I was sort of horrified by that. But I think it was a really good. It's it's true. First of all, it's sort of you know inherently and obviously true, and it and it helps me to take the pressure off a little bit sometimes as well. Like I'm I'm doing these two things that are both really hard, and it's okay if either one is perfect. And it's okay that I'm not, you know, I'm not the best professor that I could possibly be because I also love being a mom. And it's okay that I'm not the very best mom that I could possibly be because I also love being a professor. And that's all right. (laughs) But I would challenge you to think about whether being a mom might actually be making you a better professor as well. I know from a pure pure time frame, time perspective, I understand that constant push and pull between work and and family and the time, the time that's Mm -hmm. available. But I yeah. do think that there are things about being a mom that just turn you into and about the time, the constant time constraints that turn women and, you know, and some dads also into just like efficient machines. I mean, do you ever procrastinate mm-hmm. ever? I, I used to be I was a lifelong procrastinator <laughs> before I became a mother. And mm-hmm. then now I do yeah. not ever procrastinate. No, no, not on the important stuff. Right. <laughs> I get a lot more done, you know. Yeah, so I would challenge your thought about that. If you had never been a mother, would you be nearly as good of a professor as you are? That's that's something I'm going to challenge you. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. And I think I would add to, in addition to becoming more efficient just by necessity, there's sort of no other way. Um, But I think it's also made me a more empathetic person, which which I think I do bring to the job and which does – it really helps when you're advising students or, or dealing with colleagues, you know, that, that sort of deeper level of empathy that I've, I've sort of, I feel like my empathy organ has grown vastly just being, just being a mom. Um, Cause you understand that, you know, what, what sort of everyone goes through just to sort of get through, get through the day and take care of their family. Um, oh, definitely. I was already a very empathetic yeah. person. And now I feel like with mm-hmm. becoming a mom, I'm just like, I probably like would label myself as an empath to the point that it's actually a little cripple, crippling, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Right, every right, right. terrible yeah. thing that happens I see on the news. I'm like, that could have uh, been that's somebody's baby. Yeah. You know, it doesn't matter if they're like a 40 year old person. I'm like, that's somebody's baby that this happened to. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I will what say, I will say one thing that's been a common theme on this podcast is that there are some traits that are maybe stereotypically feminine, and one of them would be empathy, mm-hmm. that actually mm-hmm. really make women kill it in the workforce, and we haven't really been mm-hmm. embracing that. You know, like I had a lawyer on here who said that you know her ability to relate to clients is just so superior to a lot of mm-hmm. uh, of, the, of the male colleagues because she has a caring side of it, which you know she's a, a big firm tough lawyer. You think oh there's a caring side of it, but that actually really helps her with her clients. Her clients feel like this person, this lawyer cares about my case and cares about what I'm doing. You know, so it's 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 wonderful to think about this empathy as actually a strong point that makes you a better professor, that, that makes women do better in the workforce instead of this weakness that right. we need to hide, you know. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's definitely, I mean, the thing that frustrates me sometimes, and this is true in academia, I imagine that it might be the case in some other fields as well, is that the the benchmarks for things like promotion are not always tied to those skills, right? Like, so I think the empathy, for instance, makes me a better advisor and a better teacher. 
but I'm not getting tenure based on whether I'm doing a better job advising, right? It's not, it's based on how many papers I write and how many grants I write. So my male colleagues that kind of shut the door and they're not, you know, necessarily as open to students that are coming by with um, advisement needs or um, problems they have. Um, you know, they're, they're, in, they're writing their papers, whereas I'm spending more of my time uh, engaging with students. And so, um, you know, I love it and I think I'm, I'm good at it and I think it helps our school community. Uh, but the, the promotions and the, you know, the rewards of the job are not necessarily tied to that. Um, that's been sort of a classic problem in academia that I think is now, you know, we're now just starting to realize, like, women get assigned to committees more. Women end up doing all of this um, sort of, like, um, for lack of a better word, like, housekeeping on the job, you know, mm-hmm. um, and and um, and that that's, that's very frustrating. I and mean, I think in my department I have, uh, like I said, it's, you know, good gender balance. We have a good gender balance. We have a lot of young faculty and so, and a chair who's aware of these issues. And so she's, she's been helping me to kind of guard my time um, against over, you know, over committing to different committees that I'm asked to be on or, or advisement duties or whatever it is. That's incredibly frustrating. And I know I've heard some statistics about women in academia, and they're not pretty at all. They're really not pretty. Right. (laughs) Yep, yep. Which is confusing. It's getting better, but... (laughs) Which is confusing because, you know, I know I look back on college, and I know I was a top student and one of the top students in my college, and most of the top students were actually women um, with the best Mm -hmm. grades. And, you know, same thing in my graduate school. So it's like, wait, how come the top students are women and then all the professors are men? You know, where's the disjunct there? Yeah. Yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, I I was noticing this this summer when I was at a conference, um, one of the bigger conferences in my field, you see, you see a lot of women, but they're all um, either very, very young, or there's a handful of senior women at the top, like my collaborator, and just not many of us in the middle. And so that pipeline is getting disrupted along the way, you know. So, and, and there's a lot of a lot of people very interested in figuring out where it is that it's leaking, and it appears to be, you know, there's a couple spots, but one is definitely in the postdoc stage. So after you get your, you know, after you finish your doctorate. Uh, that's usually about the time when most women are are starting families, and so that's sort of an inherent, you know, breaking point. Um, the the I mean, the tragic part is that academia is actually it can be quite family friendly um, if you're in the you know the right school and right environment. It's pretty flexible. It, apart from my teaching schedule, I have a lot of a lot of ability to kind of call my own schedule. Um, so that's really nice. I can you know I can stay home with a sick child or um, pick up kids when I need to. And, um, and that's, that's been really good. Yeah. That's definitely the perception of people like me who are not in academia. We always kind of say, man, I should have been a professor summers off, teaching yeah. classes a week. <laughs> I, right. I guess we have a misperception <laughs> about how much work is involved. Um, but you know, from an outsider perspective, it's like, wow, that would be great, great for um, yeah. the, the work life integration right. or balance, whatever you want to call it. Right. It is. I mean, there are definitely things that are great about it. There are things that are great about it. Um, it is flexible in terms of the time. It's the thing that I wish sometimes is that I could really do a better job of turning it off when I come home, you know, because that's, that, that's the problem when you have a, a career that's so kind of 
all-encompassing. There's things to be doing at all hours, and so you have to you have to guard your your home time pretty pretty carefully in order to make sure it doesn't um, all get eaten away with work stuff. Yeah, I think that's the case for so many jobs now. I mean, yeah, that's and, right. And that's the challenge also with like I've talked a lot about trying to go part time, and it's like you know that can be really mm-hmm. a huge challenge when the work the job is what the job is, and the and the work you don't really get less work; you just get less pay. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, totally. So you're doing like the same amount of work for just but just fewer hours on the books. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's frustrating. What is some advice that that you would have for other women who are trying to navigate um, uh, maybe an academic career or or just any, any career goals in general, things that you've learned that you wish you would have known when you started out? There's a few things that I've tried to do that I will, I mean, I certainly have not mastered these by any means, but that I am trying to be cognizant of, um, one is making trying to make sure that the way I'm spending my time really is aligned with my actual really big goals, um, both in terms of my family and my work. Um, I think it's really easy for us to get bogged down in daily crises and you know all the all the the mess of life so that when you look back at how you're spending each of your hours, it, it's, it's just all over the place. It doesn't have any coherence or, and it doesn't, it doesn't get you further towards those goals you have. So I, I did a, a little exercise a couple of months ago where I tracked my time, which is it's a very annoying when you're doing it, but it's actually incredibly useful um, to see how you're actually spending your time. So like one of the things that I realized from that was that, I have a, like many people in New York, I have a just awful commute. So I, I realized I was just spending so much of my week on the train, which is just soul fucking. Yeah. <laughs> so what I, so I, I just tried to kind of creatively think through that. And now I bike part of the way. And then I, when I'm, when I have to be on the train, I, uh, I have, Spanish lessons that I'm listening to. Nice. So at least that you know that part of my day feels like I'm I'm um, I'm not just sort of like sitting there passively absorbing all the like grossness of the you know the F train. <laughs> 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 uh, but I'm I, I have you know I'm I'm accomplishing some other goals that I set out for myself like staying in shape and you know and learning another language and that kind of thing. Um, that's so awesome. that's one of them. I mean the the other one that that I'm sure has been a common theme too is, is I am getting better about just letting things slide. And I mean, really like letting, just letting that guilt go of not like not having organized the clothes that the kids have grown out of or, or purged all the toys that we've outgrown or, you know, there's, there's, um, my house is a little bit of a mess and that's okay right now. <laughs> I don't need it to look like, the inside of a magazine like my kids are happy no one's getting sick <laughs> it's not that messy but it's it's all right it's uh you know it's, it's taken me a while to sort of really be okay with that um and then of course I also rely on an amazing babysitter that we have that she's you know she's um, been with us for a few years and uh she's you know there was a point I think earlier in my kids childhood where I would have felt quite guilty about how much time she spends with them and how much she does around the house for us like 
you know, she's really like a third parent at this point. And um, I've stopped feeling guilty about that and now just feel super grateful that she's a part of our lives and, you know, the kids love her and we love her. And so that's, that's been, that's been an incredible lifesaver. You know, the, the thing about the, the work around the house, I, I'm always trying to figure out ways to outsource that <laughs> because mm-hmm. I found that when, in times of my career where I've shifted to spending more time at home and less time um, doing paid work, I've found that mm-hmm. I, most of my time is consumed by household chores, which don't actually mm-hmm. make my children happy or feel more loved or connected to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it certainly doesn't make me yeah, happy. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so it doesn't improve my yeah. um, role as a mom either. So to the extent right. you can get help on those things, I I strongly encourage that. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. I started asking myself with some of those like those little things, like you know, if I don't do this, will anyone else care? <laughs> like, right. is there anyone else who's actually going to notice or care? And a lot of the times, the answer is no. Like, you know, I I um. There's things that, that I still do because I really, I care about them myself deeply. Like I, one of the things that I do to, to kind of calm myself down and just feel like, just feel like I have more time is to make bread, which is like a crazy thing to do, right? Like you can, you can buy bread so cheaply, like you don't need to make your own bread. But at the same time, it, it, it gives me a sense of peace to like, feel like, okay, I have time in my life to make bread. <laughs> if I can, if I'm making bread that I know that I'm not like running around like a chicken without its head. You know, I I know that I have time and uh, like space in my life. And so it's almost a way of forcing myself to like recognize that. And to slow it down. It forces you to slow down, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. I also love what you said about making sure that your days are not just being consumed by, you know, tiny tasks. Um, And it's funny because I've actually been focusing on that myself as well, you know, kind of putting out like Mm -hmm. longer range goals and then goals for the week, goals for the day. And I actually heard about a book. I actually heard a podcast about a book that was called Your One Big Thing. And it was like, pick Mm -hmm. that one, pick that one thing that is the most important thing to get done that day that will make everything else not matter, you know, kind of like it'll, it'll set you up for mm-hmm. the, for accomplishing all of the other things that you have to do. Right. And just spend right, right. two hours, the beginning of the day, just doing that, not doing yeah. anything else, not responding to emails, you know, and, and, and just trying to kind of direct your own path toward the most important things rather than just be batted around. Like, I feel like if you just go into work and you just start looking at your email, you're just like, kind of knocked around all day, right? Absolutely. (laughs) And at the end of the day, you're like, what did I get done? I'm not getting any closer to my goals. Completely. Yeah. There. So my full disclosure, my husband wrote um, two books on, on sort of productivity and habit formation. Um, And in the first book, he, he talks about um, keystone habits, which is actually, so um, I don't want to say I gave him the idea, but I kind of (laughs) did. Because it's a concept in ecology, um, keystone species, the species on which all other species in the ecosystem depend. Oh. And so similarly, you can have a keystone habit, like a habit that from which all the other habits sort of follow. You know, so you could think of perhaps like for some people, it could be running in the morning. Like once you get that, that, you know, that habit developed and taken care of, then all of a sudden you're flexing all your habit muscles. And I think that, yeah, that, that idea of like one big thing is similar. Like you have, you know, you can have sort of um, this one keystone accomplishment of the day that really helps drive um, everything else 
That's cool. What's your husband's name and what's his books, book titles? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can might as well plug his book. Um, yeah, he his name is Charles Duhigg, uh, and his his first book is Power of Habit, and the second book is Smarter, Faster, Better. Wonderful, you know, because I've also been very yeah. obsessed with these productivity uh, advice books, and I've noticed mm-hmm. that it's most of it is kind of directed toward men. A lot of it is like the startup mm-hmm. world, the startup world, the tech world. They care a lot about being super efficient. Um, and I'm, I right. do have as one of my goals to bring that, that a lot of that advice and learning more to a female audience, because I think we moms can really use it too, not just startup founders, which Absolutely. are mostly 20 year old. Yeah, men. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, and I, it would be nice to see, I wouldn't say that either of his books are particularly geared towards, you know, they're not geared towards men or women really, but, but it, but it would be great to, if I, there may be a book out there, I don't know, um, that, that does take um take sort of a a a closer look at at uh at how these these lessons might apply to women who are trying to balance family and work or or being a mom or whatever it is yeah i'm totally obsessed with that stuff right now so maybe i'll write that book (laughs) in like five years (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, Yeah. after i glean all the wisdom from women like you on my podcast i'll put it all together You, you you did mention um, we ha- we're we're running out of time, but I did want to ask you one more question about just how did you get to get to biology? And despite there not being many um, you know men and I mean many women in the in the field, what brought you to biology? And and kind of how did you decide to take this career path in the beginning? I was kind of obsessed with nature from a young age, and. Um, my dad um, is not a scientist, but he he was always kind of an am- amateur naturalist and would take me out to look for bugs and things like that. And that those are some of my happiest childhood memories. I didn't think that I could be a scientist, uh, as crazy as that might sound in this, like today, but I neither of my parents were scientists. I didn't have, like I said, any female role models really whatsoever growing up. Um, I had an eighth grade science teacher who was a woman. That was it. <laughs> so my thought was that I would either teach science and at the middle school or high school level or perhaps go into an environmental conservation nonprofit and be engaged with protecting nature in that way. And it wasn't until I was really out of college that I thought to myself, I need to give this a try. This is this is really what I'm passionate about, and so let's let's give it a try. So I I, um, I started working in a lab as a volunteer, and that you know one thing led to another, and I was able to get into graduate school. And at that point, I realized this is really this is this is a, a deep passion for me. So even if it's not, um, you know, at that time I, I thought, well, maybe this is not necessarily aligned with my skill set. It's not necessarily what I'm absolutely best at in life. But it certainly is what I enjoy most. Um, and then as I've sort of come along, I've realized it's not that it's not aligned with my skill set. It's just that I have this vision of myself as someone that, you know, how could I possibly be a good scientist when it's not, you know, it's not in my pedigree. It's not, it's, it's not in my family. It's not, it's not where I've come from, which is crazy. And you didn't <laughs> um, see any famous And you didn't see women, examples of other women, women being scientists. So that's right, right. Yeah. 
which yeah, it does it does make a difference, I think. Um, so yeah, so now now I can in some small way try to provide that example for other um, girls and women who are who are interested in at least exploring it for them to know that it's an option. Well, Liz, I'm so inspired by you, and I'm ready for the next um, species named Liz Alter. <laughs> <laughs> One day, maybe. <laughs> and yeah. um, I want to thank you for being on this show. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.